Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hi everyone and welcome to On The House, the Household Management Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Gabriella Yastra, coming to you from NAM, Melbourne, Australia. Let's begin. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. Today we're going to be talking about unraveling ultra-processed foods, nourishing insights for a healthier food system. Today we're talking to Kim Anastasiou, who is a research dietitian and PhD candidate. Hi, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Gabriella. It's great to be here. Thank you. And sorry if I butchered your name. I just called you Gabriella instead of Gabriella. So we've done it. all good. Perfect, perfect. We've now assumed new identities. That's right. So um, I'd love to learn about you. Before we get onto the um, topic today, um, I'd love to learn more about you and who you are. So do you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, so I'm a PhD candidate at Deakin University um, and specifically my PhD is looking at the environmental impacts of ultra-processed foods. But coming from a, a dietetics background, I like to look at everything from an angle of what's good for us and what's healthy for us as well. So there's a couple of components there that I like to look at um, and it makes for a very, very interesting life kind of learning about these things. Yeah, I've never thought about, um, yeah, I guess the food system and how it impacts the environment. I mean, we, I think we know about how, um, you know, food and nutrition, everything affects us, at least in some ways, but it's a bit less easy to understand, I think, how it impacts on the environment. So definitely looking forward to learning more about that. Yeah, I'm excited to share it with you today. Great, thank you. But before we do get onto that, we're going to do a section we call Have You Met Kim? And that's where we learn about some of your favorite things. And um, so the first thing we'd like to know is what's your favorite book? I don't think I have a favorite book. I've had lots of different favorite books over the years, but um, I, I always love whatever I'm reading at the moment. So I thought I would tell you what I'm reading at the moment. Go ahead. And that is a book called Sedated by an author called James Davies. And it's really, it's about how the mental health crisis has been individualised. So people look at it from an individual perspective rather than kind of viewing it as maybe a bit more of a societal or structural issue. So it's a really interesting book talking mm. about really reframing some of the mental health crises that we're facing at the moment in terms of the wider system, which aligns a lot with the way of thinking um, that is happening, the shift in thinking that's happening in the world of nutrition and food systems as well. So it's been really fun to read that and see the similarities mm. to, to what's happening in our food system as well and how we're understanding that a lot of what we do and eat is is based on um, what we're surrounded by and what's available to us. Mm, yeah, I've. Um, I think we're seeing that in, in a lot of different areas where it's. Um, I think also with environmentalism as well, which is you know everyone's trying to be more green and be more environmentally friendly when actually turning to the systems of what's causing this. You know, it's fine for you to cut down on meat and use less plastics when, um, but it's not going to do much if these you know 
big companies are still polluting. And I think it's interesting to see that shift, you know, come in also as uh, our topic today with nutrition. Um, but also, yeah, as you're saying, the mental health um, problems. Um, I don't know much about that. So I'm going to have to read that book. You will. You will. It's really interesting. It's totally opened my eyes to a whole another way of thinking about mental health. Mm, yeah. Great. Um, and what about movies? Have you seen any that you've liked recently? Yeah. Um, we went to see, this will, this will reveal that I'm a little bit of a nerd. Um, <laughs> so my partner and I went to see the Dungeons and Dragons movie recently and it was like surprisingly good. It was super entertaining. Uh, so we had a recommendation from some friends to go and see it and we were a little bit hesitant at first, even though, you know, it kind of is within our, within our world. Um, but yeah, it's really good. It's very entertaining and it's kind of got the, uh, the randomness that you feel when you play Dungeons and Dragons um, as well, which is really fun. <laughs> I've always wanted to get into Dungeons and Dragons. I just haven't like had the right opportunity. So I was kind of wondering if I want, because I don't know much about Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, I wasn't sure if honest, I wanted to. neither do I. I've only played it the one time, um, but, <laughs> but it was fun to like see that. And I think the movie like is very accessible to anyone. Anyone okay. can watch it. It doesn't, it, but if you've know a little bit about Dungeons and Dragons you can see how it like fits in but otherwise I don't think you would notice it was played based on a game okay okay because yeah I was wondering if I was just gonna if everything was gonna go over my head and I wasn't gonna understand anything yeah if no, I definitely it. not because yeah again I don't know that much about D&D but okay. <laughs> enough to be like oh that was a thing <laughs> yeah okay okay I'll have to watch it then yeah um and do you listen to any podcasts yeah, I do. Um, I am, I'm a huge fan of 99% Invisible. Mm. I don't know if you know that podcast. Yeah, yep, love it. Yeah, I thought you would as well because being all about, again, about like the, the way our environment is set up mm. and very architectural focused. Um, but I love it. It's mm -hmm. so interesting for, I guess, for listeners who don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. um, it's basically a podcast where they look, take something that's, you know, pretty mundane and they'll go into it in quite a bit of detail and understand why it exists. So things like, you know, ramps on the side of the sidewalk or a particular type of lighting in the street or um, why prisons are designed they are, like the way that they are. So there's lots of it's very much, it's a design-based podcast. So mm. I love learning about it because you always end up learning about social justice or some sort of person's really interesting life. Yeah. yeah. It takes you on a crazy journey. I love it. <laughs> yeah. The one about the, the ramps on um, sidewalks, um, or sorry, pavement, um, I thought was so interesting because um, I think the point that they were making in that one was that, you know, we can design the environment to be more friendly for people of all abilities, but it doesn't just help people with disabilities. It helps everyone. It helps people with prams, shopping trolleys. Um, I rollerblade. Um, and so that little curb bit really helps me when I'm skating. Yeah. Um, and so that's something I really love um, about 99PI. And the other thing is it's really great to fall asleep to. <laughs> it is actually. <laughs> totally. Totally. I listen to it recreationally, but also to sleep sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely understand that. Yeah. Great. Um, and do you have a role model? Um, yeah. I mean, I guess I guess I try and surround myself with people who I consider to be role models. Um, and I think there are lots, uh, there are countless people that I could count as role models. I mm -hmm. mean, obviously my family members, but then also the people, it, my PhD team, I would say all of my, um, the other students in my team, as well as my supervisors and a lot of my work colleagues, everybody has so many skills and talents. And I'm like, 
how do I learn this from you? So always, always trying to surround myself with people that, um, that are, yeah, interesting and fun and kind. So do you go up to them and say, you know, you're really good at this one thing that I really admire you for, you know, can you show me how to do that? I mean, yeah, sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a good way to learn, right? Mm. And I guess there's also the learning by observation. Yeah. And I think, I think I've, I'm also very lucky in that I am surrounded by people who have similar, um, ideologies and, and visions to me. And so learning from, from them and us being able to learn from each other means that we're building towards a better world, which is a a nice feeling. Yes, definitely. Um, and have you completed any courses that have inspired you? Does a PhD count? And I've not completed it yet. So does that still count as well? I would say that counts. (laughs) Yeah. Again, I think it's probably because of the people. I'm very Mm -hmm. lucky. Um, I'm part of the Healthy and Sustainable Food Systems group at Deakin University and a very, very passionate group of people. Um, And everyone's doing PhDs on, I mean, a lot of stuff to do with ultra processed foods. There's a very strong emphasis in our team on that that topic. Um, But, you know, even... All, all sorts of different things. So around um, perspectives on meat to the health star rating to um, how we can shift the way that our government policies are so that they're more aligned with each other. So loads of different stuff. And I think you just learn via osmosis um, through through colleagues when they're doing amazing things like that. That's so interesting. And do you get to like collaborate a bit where you learn something from someone else and you're like, oh, can I use that in my research? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if I've taken on any like really specific techniques, but there's definitely, I think the influence of ideas mm-hmm. is very strong, which is really good. And I've learned a lot about um, I, I still have so much more to learn, but I'm starting to learn about the political economy as well, which has been really interesting because one of my supervisors um, and one of our, the other PhD candidates have done stuff around the political economy and very experienced in that area. So that's fascinating. Yeah, I don't yeah. think I know much about that. So yeah, yeah it'd be interesting to learn. Um, so how do you define household management? Yeah, so um, I saw this question on your list and I was like, oh, um, management of the household. <laughs> yeah, I guess anything that goes into um, living a happy, healthy life and, and hopefully also a bit of sustainability in there as well. And um, it is a lot having to manage a household and hopefully you've you know, got someone to share it with or um, it's not too much of a burden for you. But yeah, I guess I guess having a having a lifestyle that um, that you that is organised and, and and working towards something that's happy, healthy, and sustainable. Definitely, and yeah, you mentioned you know um, healthy and and um, sustainable, and that sort of does tie into what we're going to be talking about today. But I think we need to get a few definitions out of the way first. I mean, um, what is nutrition, and why is it important that we you know think about it? Yeah, so I guess there's, again, lots of different ways that you could define nutrition. But for me, it's about finding food that's nourishing and supporting good health. But I think we need a much broader definition of nutrition now that also encompasses sustainability and social as well. Because when we think about food, it is a very social practice, or at least it probably should be a social practice. Um, so sharing food is something that is you know, deeply a part of human nature. Um, so yeah, I would say that nutrition does encompass all three of those things, making making sure that the food that we're eating is nourishing our bodies, our souls, and also the environment in the process. Definitely. I think I do I think I have thought about it in terms of, you know, health and and um, environment, but not so much 
with family and as a community thing. But it makes sense because, you know, what do we do for birthdays? We have dinner together. What do we do for Christmas? We have dinner together. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you think at any celebration, there is food involved. And mm-hmm. I think that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I love good food. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, and so what is ultra processed food and how is it different from like regular food? Yeah, sure. So I guess the the easiest way of framing it is they really are junk foods. Um, mm-hmm. And most of the foods that we think of junk food are ultra processed and vice versa. So things like lollies and chips and packaged snacks and instant noodles and fast foods and soft drinks and etc. All, All the delicious g- things. <laughs> hey, I think I think there's plenty of other things that are delicious, not just those. Um, but yeah, no, all of the classic junk foods. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also probably some things that you wouldn't necessarily think about that are also ultra processed. So I guess the sign of an ultra processed food is something when you pick up and look at the back of the packet and there's this really long list of ingredients and you don't recognize what any of the names are and you're like, what is this? It's an ultra processed food. So they're usually packaged they're often marketed with you know um lots of slogans and bright colorings and things like that but really that ingredients list is the telltale sign um of whether it's ultra processed or not so um some of the things that you might not necessarily think of which may or may not be you have to check the packet um but are often ultra processed are things like muesli bars or protein bars or instant soups um artificially sweetened drinks. So things that are maybe no sugar, but they have an artificial sweetener in them. That's an ultra processed food. Um, Flavoured milks, a lot of processed meats, um, breakfast cereals as well, which gets people, not necessarily all of them again, but quite a few of them. And even some yogurts and breads, which is surprising. Really? Mm, but they sometimes have quite a few artificial additives in them, which then ticks the box for an ultra processed food. Uh. Okay, so what about okay, so what I I was thinking of some other op, some things that I was like, oh, maybe these are, maybe these aren't. Things like cheese, yogurt. Yeah, no, they're not. So okay. that's um maybe it would help if I explain the classification system. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, so it was designed in about 2009 by a Brazilian researcher who basically was looking at the Brazilian food supply and saying, "Wow, this has changed a lot and people have become a lot more unhealthy. We're seeing a lot of um yeah, health implications happening, but it's not necess- it doesn't seem to be due to maybe fat, salt and sugar. So there's something else happening. So he designed a system which is based on the level of processing of food um, and it's called the NOVA classification, N-O-V-A, and it's all caps and it looks like it's an acronym and it's absolutely not. Um, so it's just straight up NOVA. Um And basically he argued that the way of defining foods that's a bit more holistic is through this level of processing. So there's four categories in the NOVA classification scheme. And the first is unprocessed or minimally processed foods. So things like fresh fruit and vegetables, legumes, meat and dairy, um, whole grains. And then we have, so really when you think about healthy food, that's, you know, you think about Nova classification group one. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we also have a couple of other groups which are really important for a healthy and enjoyable diet. Um, so group two is processed culinary ingredients. So that's things like salt and sugar and oil and sauces and herbs. Basically, 
things that you need to be able to convert group one foods, so those minimally processed or unprocessed foods, into a meal that you could cook at home for yourself. So those really delicious additives that you would put in yourself, but are really things that your grandmother would would have used and have been around for a long time. And um, and you're not going to be using them in large quantities because when you cook at home, you just add a little bit of these things in for flavouring. You're not mm. basing the meal on those items. And then there's group three, which is processed foods. And that is things that have been preserved or they might have been fermented. And again, these foods are really essential to a healthy and sustainable diet. Um, So it includes things like canned fruits and vegetables, canned lentils and legumes, um, a lot of breads, yogurt, because that's a fermented food, um, canned fish. So those types of things that we would have in our cupboard and that we would use again to create a meal at home, um, they're really important as well for food security because we can't always rely on fresh foods, um, especially in times of crises. So, and and I'm a huge user of processed foods. We we have, our diet is very heavily based on tins of lentils and and chickpeas and um, tinned tomatoes and things like that are feature heavily in my life. Um, so those types of foods are all three of those categories, the unprocessed or minimally processed foods, the processed culinary ingredients and the processed foods are all essential healthy parts of our diets um, and help us to meet our nutritional needs. And it's quite different from group four. So group four is the ultra processed foods group. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you the technical definition. So the technical definition is, and I'm going to quote it, formulations of ingredients that are mostly of exclusive industrial use that result from a series of industrial processes. So that basically means just things that you can't make in your kitchen at home. Um, So things that go through some sort of industrial process. So, for example, extrusion is a technique whereby you end up making this like slurry of a paste and sticking it through a machine and it comes out the other end. You've got no idea what went into that. Um, (laughs) And it might be used to make, you know, chips or uh, snacks and all sorts of different things. Um, And and usually these, again, it's formulations of ingredients. So it's not like a mixture of whole foods. It's Mm -hmm. something where you've basically taken the original food like wheat and you've deconstructed it and pulled out a bunch of its components and then shoved it into a whole pile of other different foods. And so that's the ultra-processed food group. So the things that we yeah, can't make in our kitchen at home, and they comprise about 40% of our diets now. Wow. So 40% of Australians' energy intake comes from ultra-processed foods. That's over one-third of what we're eating. Yeah, it's yeah. It's massive. That's so much more than I thought. And I, I mean, I, I mean, as a... I would say not unaverage. I wouldn't say I'm too weird or different to my eating habits. Um, obviously, I try to eat as much, you know, um, you know, fresh fruit and vegetables, um, unprocessed foods. But it's it's hard, you know. Um, I don't want to have to make everything from scratch. No. Um, so I I suspect that there I'm consuming more processed food than I think, or ultra processed food than I think. Um, but I did want to, you know, so something like. If I made a cake at home, would that mm-hmm. be like a processed food? Yeah, it would be. But it so, wouldn't be an ultra processed food. No. And if you think about it, I mean, most people who are making cakes at home are making them for celebrations mm. and we're making them because they're part of our food culture. So there's mm-hmm. this kind of component of the ultra processed food paradigm that accounts for the fact that food is a part of our culture and we do need to be able to consume it in in ways that is nourishing for our souls as well as for our bodies. Mm. 
But then if we bought like a cake mix from the supermarket and then made that into a cake, maybe it's more ultra processed than the yeah, one we make at on. home. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it is a very different way of framing things. And and perhaps it will help when we talk a little bit more about their health impacts and mm. and I can explain why, we, we, why we're thinking about nutrition in a different way. Yeah. But before we do that, um, why, why do we eat so much ultra processed food? So this is a huge, huge can of worms to open. <laughs> How deep do we want to go into this? I guess that's the question. Let me, let me give you a, a, a medium overview. I won't mm-hmm. go too deep, but, yeah, <laughs> but I'll give good. you enough info. So basically we've had major changes in our food system, in the way that we produce foods in the last century. Mm-hmm. So we went from pretty low input agricultural practices where we're producing relatively low yields of things to very high input farming practices. So that's things like using a lot of fertilizers and pesticides um, and, and having a lot of high yields as well, which is great. So this was the green revolution that we saw in the last century and it's huge impacts for feeding the world. It's been really fabulous and it's succeeded in many ways in reducing um, the rates of, of hunger and, and malnutrition in the world. It hasn't necessarily ticked all the boxes though because um, while we've seen food prices come down, we still have a lot of inequalities in our food system. And it's also led to the ability to create these really low-cost ingredients. And so we've ended up with this abundance of um, these high input, these types of products or types of um, uh, crops and, and animals that we can basically produce in this industrial way. So we've ended up with loads of corn and wheat and soy and rice. Um, and we've ended up with a global food system where over half of our calories and protein from plants is coming from just three crops. Oh, that doesn't seem to be very diverse. <laughs> that is right. It's not diverse at all. So rice, maize and wheat contribute half Uh, So over half of our calories and proteins that come from crops. And to add to that, so even to zoom out a bit more, three quarters of the world's food is generated from just 12 plants and five animal species. I mean, I knew about the animal thing because I was thinking about like, we only really eat like chicken, beef, pork, sheep, um, maybe some fish. But the the plant thing seems, um, I mean, I try to eat plenty of different varieties of vegetables. I feel mm-hmm. like there should be more than, what, you said 12? Yeah, so 12 is uh, three quarters of the world's food is generated from 12 plants and five animal species. That's crazy. Yeah. And it's crazy, Gabriella, because there are 250 to 300,000 known edible plant species. So there's we have loads of options. We're just not using them. And yeah. part of that is because we've become so good and so efficient at growing just a select few of these. Um, so... Basically, what's happened is that food manufacturers have needed to be able to differentiate between these products. If we have just a few of these main ingredients that are feeding us, then in order to make them profitable, you have to do something to them. And so we kind of ran out of things that we could do with them um, early on without ultra processing them. And now we've ended up basically with this food supply that's almost being forced or manufacturers that are making an active decision to do this, but it's locked itself into this system whereby because we have so few crops that are able to be produced in this really like heavily intensive um, system and it's it's feeding into this like ongoing production of, of those crops and also translating them into ultra processed foods. So 
the ultra processing itself is enabling things like corn and, and, and maize and rice or sorry, corn and rice and wheat um, to be to be translated into something that's tasty and convenient and cheap and usually packaged, which I'm sure we'll get to later when we talk about the environmental sustainability. And exactly like you said, it's giving this impression of diversity because when you walk into the supermarket, you see all of these different packages and go, oh my gosh, there's so much, many options. But when you look behind that facade, it's really not that much. Like our diets are, are not diverse at all anymore, which mm-hmm. is a real problem for our health. And so if, I, I mean, something that I feel like I learned or I've heard is that the, um, you know, you need a variety of different foods to meet your nutritional needs. Um, yeah. You know, like, I don't know, broccoli has got vitamin C, um, but if you just eat broccoli, you're not going to have enough, I don't know, iron, something else. Um, so if we're only eating these, you know, 12 different types of vegetables and or plant-based foods and five animals, does that mean we're missing out on like, um, we have too much of one specific type of nutrition and we're not getting enough of other types of like vitamins and proteins. Yeah, absolutely. And it also means that because even though they are coming from, a, you know, a small range of, of these um, crops and livestock species, also because they've been pulled apart and we're only getting little bits of those, there's not much nutrition left in what we're actually ah. getting as well. So, and and maybe that will help if we do a bit of an explanation of, of the health impacts when we get to that as yeah. well. Um, but that's a big component of it because we're not necessarily getting the nutrition that we would get from wheat when we mm-hmm. eat an instant noodle. Really? Okay. Can you explain more of the health impacts? Because you've, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, skirted around it a little bit. Um, and I'd love to know why instant noodles aren't the same as wheat. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a good question. So, um, yeah, so where should I start? So ultra processed foods, are, again, it's a relatively new term in the world of science. Things, you know, take, take a while to, for us to investigate. Um, so it was it came about in about 2009. Um, and since then, there's just been this incredible um, avalanche of research that's been going into this area, um, particularly in the last five years. So we now know that ultra processed foods are associated with um, high consumption of ultra processed foods are associated with heart disease, type two diabetes, inflammation and oxidative damage, symptoms of depression and anxiety, cancers and all cause mortality, which is death early death. So not great. Um, Not great. They're not, yeah, not faring too well. Um, So there are loads of different mechanisms. And I think we probably still do need a little bit more evidence for what the mechanisms are, but I'll give you some of the, the proposed mechanisms. So I guess the first one is that these foods tend to be a carrier for saturated fat, salt and sugar. Because again, if we think about they're trying to be manufactured and sold. So the more palatable they are, the more likely that they are to be sold. So yes, they might have some wheat and stuff in them, but they've probably also got a lot of other additives. And one of the main things that is added is things like saturated fats and salt and sugar, which we know are not very good for us. And also they tend to be relatively low on fiber um, and vitamins and minerals. So the nutritional composition, the nutrient composition is, is pretty poor. But again, this is actually a very narrow view of the healthfulness of food because we often talk about 
perhaps fat, salt and sugar as the main things that we should look at. But there's 26,000 distinct different um, biochemicals that are present in our food and we don't really look at a lot of them. Um, So other additives that are in ultra processed foods may actually be playing a role as well. So things like artificial sweeteners, we know now disturb the gut microbiome. So while, you know, that was kind of something that some public health nutritionists were very keen for reformulation of sugar, sugar sweetened beverages into artificial sweeteners. Most recently, like two weeks ago, the World Health Organization came out with a statement where they were saying, basically, in very layman's terms, guys, maybe we should rethink this because it's not actually very good evidence to show that this is better for our health. So, um, yeah, again, one of the reasons why ultra processed foods uh maybe associated with all of these poor health outcomes could be through some of these additives like artificial sweeteners. But then that's still just looking at additives. So there's another layer here as well. So there's lots of different components to this story. So the food matrix is basically the way foods are combined and um, really represents how processed the food is. So there's different absorption of different parts of the food depending on how the basically the chemicals and the structure of the food is is connected so one of the other things that this leads to is the fact that the texture of the food has changed so when we have um a lot of ultra processed foods again taking different components different parts of, of original food recombining it we often end up with foods that are softer um, they require less chewing and this sends signals to our brain or uh, actually sends a lack of signals to our brain around fullness and satiety. So we're going to consume these foods faster um, and we're probably going to consume more of them before we feel, feel full. So that all of these things together mean that the original composition of the food is not very um it's not very good for our health, but it also means that because they've got all of these additives that are really tasty, because their texture is different and we eat more of them, it means that everything is leading to overconsumption. So they're really encouraging us to consume more of these foods. I mean, we don't need any, but way more of these foods than we need. Um, and another part of that is, you know, you often buy them as like a packaged snack mm. and it's something you can hold in your hand or eat while you're at the computer. It's really convenient. And so, again, everything is like pushing us towards consuming as much of these foods as possible. So it's really, really hard to avoid them because they're also everywhere. Mm. Everywhere we go in the world, they're, they're there. You can go to remote parts of Brazil and they're there and they're in um, the jungle in Thailand. Like they're just so prolific um and and their packaging has actually enabled that as well Mm. well that's the thing is um you know when you go on a walk um do you want to bring um several apples and i don't know some flour and make yourself some bread (laughs) or do you want to bring a few power bars which you know come in their own little handy little wrapping yeah um yeah, it's much easier to to carry those around with you. Um, and then, you know, when you go into the kitchen because you're hungry, do you want to, you know, have to cook something for yourself with some vegetables or eat some some fruit? Um, or do you want to reach and get grab the biscuits and eat a few biscuits um, and then you're done? Yeah, absolutely. It's so convenient. It is convenient. And in many ways, the system is, you know, increasingly being designed against us because they are everywhere. They're easier for us to eat. They're cheap. So there's not the kind of budget issues that um, you might have if you're trying to eat a lot of more expensive fruit and veggies. So 
it is um it is very much designed in a way that this is this is the easiest most convenient option and it's it's good enough even though it probably isn't mm. <laughs> and it does that in a very very clever ways because a lot of these um food companies that have that have producing these foods will will produce them to the tastes of the individual culture that they're trying to go into so they'll replicate a product that we might see that's part of a traditional cuisine in an ultra processed manner so instant noodles are a great example of that because you know me goreng and ramen and things like that are things that have been around for a really long time the instant version of those products are designed really to replace them and so we end up swapping those traditional cuisines that were quite good for us to something that is ultra processed and it and it replaces and overrides that interesting i guess it's kind of like those instant mashed potatoes yeah totally <laughs> rather than getting a potato and mashing it yourself you know getting the who knows what's in them and just making it with some water yep yeah so yeah it is a really it's a really big problem um mm. because yeah they, they're everywhere and they're not good for us <laughs> yeah <laughs> so what can we do about this situation is there anything that we as consumers can do yeah i mean obviously there are things that we can do as individuals um and I think, I, I think trying to consume as little of these as possible is a good thing, but also asking for change because I think there are a lot of situations and we need to, you know, band as a community um, and say this isn't, you know, good enough. So um, there are, you know, if you have kids in school talking to the PTA and making sure that the foods that are being taken to school or being um sold in school canteens are not ultra processed is important. Um, but also speaking up against, you know, campaigns that are happening. So for example, I had dinner with a, with a colleague of mine last night who, um, who is a mother and she has a seven year old son and he recently won player of the match at his local, at his school actually in his school sporting team. And if you win player of the match, you get a little voucher to a fast food um, restaurant. And that's like teaching our kids that the, the way to celebrate is to consume an ultra processed food. And it's also a very clever marketing tactic to get young children excited, happy, and going to these restaurants and tasting and trying these foods that maybe parents are trying to avoid getting them involved in. So there's so many different ways out there that these foods are being marketed to our kids um, as well as to adults. And so being aware of that and looking out for those things and, and speaking up is, is really important. Okay. And how should we speak up? You know, should we tweet at companies? Um, should we protest outside of their factories? <laughs> yeah. I don't think I have the answer to that, Gabriella. And I think that individuals will probably be able to work out um, maybe a little bit more about what's best, but you know, things like uh, again, th talking to your PTA, that kind of stuff, joining community gardens or vegetable exchange programs or co-ops. So things, doing the, the counter culture as well of being really involved in local food systems can be really empowering as well. But I mean, the biggest thing is actually just talking to other people about this um, and recognizing that, you know, so much of our diet we put on ourselves to say, hey, we need to make changes in our own diet and it's our responsibility. But when you start looking around at the food system and the food environment that we live in and you see that everything is set up against us, then it is really important to start having those conversations with other people and kind of relieve that pressure of, hey, it's not you. Um, this is the thing that we need to do as a community and a society and, and, and have a conversation about it. Okay. So 
Yeah. And sort of bringing back to what you were saying earlier in the, um, when you're talking about the podcasts, mm-hmm. I think, uh, oh no, it was the book. I can't remember. Um, which is that it's not really an individual problem. It's more of a systematic problem. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, yep. so it's not about I'm making bad decisions. It's about I'm surrounded by bad decisions. Yes. Um, and it's really hard for me to, um, make the right decision. Can you explain that a little bit more or have we sort of got most of it? Yeah, I think we've probably covered most of it at okay. this point, but it, that you've, you've absolutely nailed it, Gabriella. That is, that is absolutely the issue that we have. And we need to make sure that we're looking out for everybody because mm. particularly like if you think about a single parent family, they might live out in the suburbs somewhere. They've got a long commute. They pass 10 fast food places on the way. There's like advertisements for family meal deals at every spot. They don't have time or energy to be able to produce food when they get home. Like that whole environment is just not what we need to be doing to support the well-being of our of our country. Mm, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and so I think something else that we can do is um, improve our knowledge and learn a bit more. Um, do you have any like suggestions of, you know, what people can do, how people can learn, or even just know what's in the food that they're buying now? Yeah. Um, so I guess actually I haven't read it yet. So I'm going to put it with a preface, but there was a book that came out very recently called Ultra Processed People, which I have, it arrived last week. I'm so excited to read it. Um, but it's written, been written by a medical doctor who has a really good understanding of this topic. And, um, I'm really excited to read that. So would, would strongly recommend reading Ultra Processed People Hopefully it's good. Um, (laughs) But otherwise there's a lot of research papers and seminars and things out there that you can learn more about this topic as well. But perhaps at some point we should dive into the environmental impacts as well. Um, When you're ready though, obviously. Yeah, no, I think that we've um, gotten most of the questions that I wanted to ask about like the health and nutrition side. I think the last question actually is, are all ultra processed foods unhealthy? Yeah, this is such a good question. And so many people ask this. And I think in probably in some ways, there is a spectrum from something that's got like one additive to it to something that's like fully ultra processed that you can't recognize anything in there. But fundamentally, I think it's usually a sign that it's come from like an industrial food system um, which generally means that it's bad for the environment, which we'll talk about in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess it's, Insinu- it's basically telling us that there's probably a better option out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Okay, so probably not. <laughs> probably not. And, and most of the time, ultra-processing is, I mean, actually all of the time, ultra-processing is inherently unhealthy because of the way that the food has mm. been produced, not just because of the additives. Okay. I guess what I was trying to differentiate there is if you've got a yogurt that is basically just yogurt with a preservative that's quite different to if you've got something that's, you know, um, again, like a protein bar where literally everything on there is unrecognizable. And it's funny because I feel like protein bars have kind of, I don't know, at least to me, been marketed as a kind of healthy thing. Like, oh, it's got extra protein. Protein is good for me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so funny. The protein story is quite interesting because we actually don't tend to over, like we don't tend to have an underconsumption of, of protein in, in Australia. Actually, Australians consume more protein than we need. So it is very rare that we actually have individuals that need more protein. So that's kind of an interesting story. Mm. I've also heard before um, some some researchers say that one of the signs of ultra processed foods is something that's being marketed to you. So if you're reading a packet and it's saying, I'm high in X nutrient and or I'm low in X nutrient or I'm healthy or I've got this stamp, 
it's quite likely ultra processed. And, yeah. and that is true. If you look around the supermarket and see all of the things that are actually being marketed to you and they're telling you that it's healthy, it's, it's often ultra processed because a carrot doesn't need to say that to you. You know, <laughs> you know, it's good for you. <laughs> exactly. I, I've never thought about that, but I'm going to go into the supermarket and I'm going to look at all the food that we have there and I'm going to say, oh, interesting. The eggs don't say I'm healthy. Yeah. Oh, sometimes they do. Sometimes they do. And I think that's not probably the perfect rule of thumb, but it is kind of a funny one when we think about the way things are being communicated to us mm. versus versus what, what what is actually happening. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so yeah, we want to move on now to the environmental effects. Um, so what are the effects? I imagine, you know, the single use plastics. And as you said, the separating of different uh, ingredients, they all sort of produce greenhouse gases. Um, mm -hmm. Is that it or are there more things that we need to know? Yeah, that's absolutely part of it. Um, but it's, yeah, much, much bigger. So um, I like to think of it in terms of three kind of core concepts. So the first is that hopefully if you've listened this far into the podcast, you'll understand that we don't need these foods. They're mm -hmm. unnecessary foods. We don't need to produce them. Um, and all of the resources that we use to produce foods are scarce environmental resources. So things like water and land and pesticides and fertilizers we are scarce or we don't want to use much of them because they're not too great for, our, for the environment. So we really need to prioritize these these resources for the production of, of healthy of healthy foods. And, um, and that's super important. And so as soon as we start spending environmental resources producing foods that we don't need and that are bad for us, it's a waste. Conceptually, it's a waste. So that's kind of concept number one. And then the second concept is that, uh, and it's related to the first one, is that ultra processed foods are designed for overconsumption. So basically that means that we're eating more than we need. So that means that we're using more environmental resources than we need. So that's hugely problematic. Um, and then the third one is, again, exactly like you said here, that we it's coming from industrial agriculture. So industrial agriculture tends to have an over-reliance. And this, I mean, these are very broad sweeping brushes, but tends to be overly reliant on fertilizers and pesticides. There's a lot of monoculture farming that happens. And this is a problem because if you think about a farm, we often just think about the farm as being its own little farm environment and separate from the natural world. But in reality, a field of of corn or a field of wheat has local bird species coming in and out of it and has other things that are coming, you know, kangaroos and things like that. You know, like there are, there are natural parts of our ecosystems that are interacting with that and it has flow and impacts for the surrounding ecosystems as well. So if we're producing just one crop in an area, then it means that it's going to have impacts for the biodiversity, not just of our food supply, but also of the natural environment. And it's also important for resilience. So I don't know if you know the story of bananas from the last century. Yes, yes I do. You do. Um, but you go ahead. Okay. Well, basically, <laughs> I find this interesting because as a kid, you know, you get the banana lollies, which, mm. by the way, I always thought were really disgusting. But um, that's they... the only reason I know this story is because yes. of the banana lollies. Because of the banana lollies. Absolutely. Yes. So they taste really funny to us because they were based on a, um, a species or a variety of bananas that no longer exists because there was this massive, um, there was this pest that basically ran through all of the bananas and 
destroyed all of the banana crops, um, basically through South America and then eventually through the world. And so they then brought in the Cavendish species that was that's basically taken over and that's the bananas that we eat today. But um, it, that is a perfect, perfect demonstration of if we have just one variety of a particular thing that we're growing, like bananas or like wheat, um, and we, if we're growing it in one specific area, it's not a resilient food system. So, again, last year we saw massive rise in lettuce prices and um, that was because so many of our lettuces were, the lettuce crop was destroyed um, and a lot of that is coming from the New South Wales region. And so it's, you know, it, those things, those choices are made because it is it is environmentally um easier to produce those foods in certain regions, but we don't have to produce just one species. So things like the the banana story could be prevented if we had a wider variety of species. And if we're relying on producing, um, so if we're producing so many ultra processed foods in our food system and the machinery for ultra processed foods is is basically only designed for this one specific type of crop, then we're basically connecting the system and reinforcing that production of just that one type of crop in a monoculture farming system. So that's quite problematic. Um, and the final thing is the packaging. Yes. Yes. Oh, the other thing I was going to say was um, we kind of saw this during COVID when um, we had you know, maybe in Australia we had, you know, lots of a specific product, but we had no manufacturing for it or with mm. the opposite where we had manufacturing capabilities, but we didn't have the, um, the, the product to put it in. So the one I remember was san sanitizer. Mm. Apparently the factories had hand sanitizer, but they didn't have the bottles to put the hand sanitizer in. And I guess that it's sort of that same thing with the, with factories as well, producing food, which is that, um, if I don't know, wheat suddenly, was no longer a thing. There was some virus that or parasite that killed all the wheat. We wouldn't know what to do with the factories. We couldn't suddenly change them and use them for something else. Mm. And so we'd have this huge food shortage mm -hmm. because we're just relying on one crop. Yeah. And I guess another example of that is the war on Ukraine, mm. where um, particularly parts of Europe have had huge impacts for their food supply because they get so much um, from that one region. So I guess it's just a reminder that in kind of an ever more complex world and a, and a world that's really going to be seeing a lot more um, climate crises, uh, we do need to think about resilience and we do need to design things in ways that um, is encouraging us to be a bit more diverse in our food production. Another question I had with um, sort of the um, growing, you know, crops, the same sort of types of crops um, in large amounts mm. is that it seems to me, and I could be wrong, is that that has sort of helped to solve at least some of the, you know, hunger issues, you know, by producing a lot of wheat and a lot of corn, even if it's not hugely nutritious, at least people have something to eat now. Mm. Um, and what if we were to start, you know, if we stopped producing that really bulk um, food source mm. and we started producing um, a larger variety, but maybe with less volume, would that increase hunger? Would we, ha would we have a, a food shortage? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great question. Yeah. So I think actually the story is 
I mean, the story is quite nuanced, right? Mm -hmm. So we do need to make sure that we're still producing enough food to feed the world. But it's what happens after that supply chain stage of the initial production. We don't need to do the ultra processing. That's very clear. That's not necessary. And if we reduced ultra processing, then we actually probably wouldn't need as much of that wheat crop for the Australian population. So if we're looking at within the Australian context where really what we need to think about is making sure that people are getting enough nutritious foods, um, then it's, it, it is it is a bit of a nuanced story, but it's not about like wiping out wheat altogether. That's obviously super important for our production. <laughs> it is about thinking, okay, well, we actually probably don't need as much as we're currently producing. Mm-hmm. So let's keep producing some. And it's important to make sure that things are being done efficiently as well. Um, so let's keep producing some, but let's think about overall reduction of ultra processed foods, avoiding the production of the things, the inputs for those products. And with that farmland, what else could we do? It also reminds me a little bit of, did you ever read Good Omens? Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, Terry Pratchett, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes, and Daniel it's been Gaiman. a long time. Um, and one of the um, four horsemen of the apocalypse was fast food. Oh, yeah, I'm actually, maybe I haven't read it. I think I must, must have just seen it on my brother's bookshelf so okay. many times. But yes, tell me I, all about I it. I think you should read it. Or I think I, th- I think it's a great book. And it was also a TV series now. Yeah. Um, but in one of them, um, I think it was Famine. The whole idea was that um, this person was creating this fast food that had no nutritional value at all, just, ca- just I guess, calories. Uh-huh. So people were malnourished but also overweight at the same time. And this is exactly what's happening in the world right now. <laughs> and the whole time I've been thinking... We've been talking about this and I'm like, this is ultra ultra processed food, which is people are malnourished and also, um, you know, uh, overweight at the same time, which is, uh, I mean, it's great. It's so the apocalypse is nigh. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. <laughs> no, you've absolutely nailed it. That is, that is, uh, that is absolutely the issue that we are facing right now. Yeah. And I guess um, if we're talking more about the environmental impacts, it, just to, to round that part of the conversation off um, and, and bring it a little bit back to my research. So what I've done recently in collaboration with a, with a number of world leading experts on um, sustainable and healthy food systems is we've gotten together and we've mapped the environmental impacts of ultra processed foods and also what's driving their consumption. And we've basically created this big systems map that looks at how everything is connected to each other and the flow on impacts of those things. So um We've we've found through that process that ultra processed foods can lead to things like soil erosion and land degradation and biodiversity loss, which we've discussed already. Um, eutrophication, which is basically nutrient runoff from overuse of fertilizers into local ecosystems, um, whereby you have this you know influx of nutrients into rivers and then you can have algal blooms and things like that as well as acidification of soil and water ecosystems so both of those things can have substantial impacts for biodiversity so there's a connection there so things are actually connecting to each other and amplifying those impacts um we also know that there's air pollution as well as greenhouse gas emissions occurring at every single stage of production so everything from agricultural production all the way through to transport packaging etc um is is leading to greenhouse gas emissions as well um and and we can talk more about packaging if you'd like yeah we can talk about packaging (laughs) yeah so I wanted to raise when I was thinking about what we would talk about today I wanted to raise a study um which was done a few years ago now in Brazil where they basically looked at 
beach they'd literally gone to beaches and done some beach combing and looked at the types of waste that they found on beaches and previously um so traditionally in in uh brazil what they've seen in the last 50 years or so is a lot of fishing waste which is really problematic obviously what they're starting to see now is that yes the fishing waste is still there but they're actually getting even larger volumes of packaging from ultra processed foods being washed up on their beaches or just being left there at the end of the day. So even so, you know, you've got these really populated areas and the beaches there have ultra processed food packaging on them. But even in the remote parts of Brazil where people don't really visit those beaches, there is packaging being washed up. And we also know that these types of packages have been found in the Great Pacific garbage patch all the way in the middle of the ocean. So this packaging from these systems is not being dealt with very well. Um, a lot of it is plastic packaging, which is obviously of a lot of concern because it takes a very long time to degrade. Um, and, and it takes resources to be able to make the packages in the first place. So there's lots of components of the packaging story, which is quite concerning. Um, especially since we think about like, we don't, we don't need these. So we could really just pick up a banana, which doesn't have, well, it has a package, but it's biodegradable and, and no one spent, you know, plastic energy making the plastic to make the banana package. Cause it's just there. So, mm. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, we could, you know, obviously we still need plastic for some things, but yes. if we don't need ultra processed food, then we don't need packaging for ultra processed food. So it's sort of an easy, um, Thing that we can just get rid of. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. You also mentioned that you're looking at the sort of driving forces as well as the impact that it has. What are the driving forces or yeah. have we already spoken about them? Yeah, we've spoken about some of them. Um, you know, I probably should have um, prepared myself a little bit more to talk about those. So, yeah, so I guess there's three different areas that we can think about um, when we talk about driving forces. So the first is the biological drivers, which we've already spoken about, because that's really the fact that these foods are manufactured in ways to make them as palatable as possible and to make you consume them as much as possible. And there's feedback mechanisms that are happening in our brain that are basically giving us, you know, really good feelings when we eat these food and then we want to eat more and we end up with cravings, et cetera. Um, so that's kind of area number one. Area number two, I think we've also spoken about, which is really this like social um, side to things. So we've got these foods that are everywhere, that are cheap, that are accessible. Um, and area number three is the political economy. So it's basically this concept that ultra processed foods are predominantly produced by transnational corporations. So these really big companies that are making a lot of profit off of people consuming these, purchasing and consuming these, and um, putting some of that, redirecting some of that profit into corporate activities that strengthen them. So um, one of the th examples is things like mega mergers, which we've seen in the food system, whereby you have companies that buy up or merge with another company that has a different part of the supply chain. So for example, there are um, there are large corporations that, and I'll avoid naming them in this, in this podcast, but there are large corporations that own, you know, the seed and the inputs and, um, and also purchase the crop after it's been produced, manufacture that, own the packaging system and the marketing and sometimes even a science group. So you'll have basically this like squeeze that happens around farmers where they have to purchase the inputs from the company that they also sell the outputs to. So it's really problematic because it's like boxing farmers into a what they can produce, how they can produce it and how much they sell it for. 
Um, and, and B, it also means that you can, like when you step back and look at the big picture, you've got corporations that are basically running the show at every level, which means that they're earning a huge amount of profit from this system that then they can use and redirect into things like lobby, lobbying of governments and, um, and, and campaigns for um, misinformation around ultra-processed foods, which we've started to see recently, which is really interesting and, um, and, and really trying to prevent change. Mm, mm. Interesting. So, um, yeah, holding every aspect of the whole industrial process um, mm. so that, you know, um, I guess not everyone can choose to be part of it or not. Um, so people people's livelihoods are dependent on that. And then also, yeah, I guess um, making it so that they no one can, can – um, unseat them from power. Yeah. Yeah. And it is a very powerful position to be in. If you are listening to this and you're interested in this, I would strongly recommend reading Phil Baker's work. Mm -hmm. And, um, he's a, he's actually one of my supervisors. Um, and, and he does amazing work on the political economy of ultra processed foods. And I've learned so much from him. Um, and, and really I'm not an expert on that, that side of the story at all, but it's been fascinating to learn about because it is not something I knew anything about two and a half years ago. When I walked into this space, I was like, oh, what does this mean? <laughs> so it's been really eye-opening. Great. Yeah. yeah, I have to learn a bit more about that. Um, was there something that we've uh, missed that you wanted to talk about? Um, I don't think so. I think we've done a really good job of, of covering covering a, a lot of ground here today, yeah, Gabriella. Thanks great. for all of your questions. They've Thank been you. fantastic. Thank you. Um, yeah, I. Uh, it's a very interesting space um, that I want to know everything about. Um, but yeah, I think um, I can't think of anything else. So we'll move on to the next section. Sure. That's okay. Yeah. Um, so what is something that you do in your own home to help manage your meals? Yeah. So again, I think this is really, really nice end to the story because we've just like gone and zoomed out to the really big picture and like, okay, well, what do we, what can we do in our own lives? Um, yeah. So I, my partner and I love the Adelaide Central Market. Um, <laughs> you can find us there all the time. And we're really lucky in Adelaide because we have right in the, like actually right in the middle of the CBD. Um, so right next to Tartan Yanga, which is uh, Victoria Square, which is the Literally the centre, there is a huge market. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a like a fresh, fresh fruit, fruit and veg. vegetables, you know, fresh meat, everything. Everything, yeah. Okay. Loads of different cuisines. So it's really great. So you've got this central hole that is just aisles and aisles and aisles of fresh fruit and vegetables, most of it local and in season. And, you know, there's a couple of stores that do like kind of crazy veggies that have been imported from overseas but basically everything else is mm -hmm. is local in season and incredibly affordable um so like we've literally cut down our food bill massively compared to what we would um spend if we were shopping at at a major supermarket chain um so we we go there every week um we load up we get about 30 bucks of fruit and vegetables which doesn't sound like much but from where we are it is more than i can carry um <laughs> and there's a there's a cheap bulk food store there as well so we we try and avoid using too much plastic so we take our little container that we put our oats in on our container that we put our rice in and bits and bobs and we go and buy those things from there and then on either Saturday or Sunday, we do a big cookathon 
and we freeze half of the food for the week and it actually usually only takes us about two hours. Okay. Um, but I am very blessed. My partner's an ex-cook. Like he used to be working in the in kitchen, so he's so fast. Um, so we do do that for about two hours and then that's our cooking for the week. We actually don't cook basically after that, which is great. Maybe one night a week we might need to supplement something with a salad or whatever. But, um, yeah, we're, we're all about efficiency. So it's good to get it over and done with and enjoy the food that we get from that process. Yeah, I, I do want to sort of think about meal planning a bit more because, um, yeah, I feel like every day we have this rush. We're like, oh, it's five. Got to go to the supermarket before it closes because we don't know what we're eating for dinner. Yeah, I'm such a hangry person. That wouldn't work for me. <laughs> I think, unfortunately, we tend to end up snacking on something ultra processed yeah. before dinner just yeah. to like tide us over until we finish cooking, which, you know, isn't the best. So I guess one way, as you've sort of mentioned, I think a little bit, you know, of reducing your ultra processed consumption is to make sure you have those, um, you know, things there for you to eat that mm-hmm. already pre-cooked, pre-planned, that made from, you know, um, f- whole foods that, um, so you're not reaching for biscuits, chips and stuff. Instead, you're reaching for the rice and veggies. Yeah, 100%. And I've had people comment before, which is a kind of funny thing to comment on, but people have said, you know, you eat a lot of food. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I actually eat big meals because then I don't really snack too much. I ha- might have a little bit of yoga at some point during the day, but you know, I'm having three meals and they're usually quite large portions um, because that's how you get full and, and make sure that you meet your veggie requirements for the day and things like that. So, yeah. And I yeah. guess the other thing is, um, at, at, you know, ultra processed foods, they're quite calorie dense, right? Yes. So that means that the food that we're eating is less calorie dense. So you need to eat more of it to actually... You yeah, know, meet your your requirements. Yeah, bang on, bang yeah. on. Yeah, so it's Absolutely. not actually a large meal; it's just a sufficient meal. <laughs> that's right, that's right. I think yeah, and I think our perception of these types of things has warped a lot. And I did idea of snacking, um, which is not a bad thing, just to be very clear. But I think it's been normalised to have probably more snacks than we actually need, or maybe not listen to our hunger and satiety signals. Um, and one of the other things that I've done over the years is that I have dinner really early because I was getting so snacky when I got home from work that I was like, actually, I'm ready for a full meal. And so my partner and I have dinner as soon as we get home because it's made, we just put it in the microwave. So we have dinner at like 5.30. Um, so we're like an old, <laughs> old retired couple or something. I'm not sure. But <laughs> that's what works for us. And something different will work for someone else. Mm. But I do think, and I mean, this is like dietetics 101, having that meal planning and preparation embedded in your weekly routine is so helpful. And we actually have a list on our phones of like some of the recipes that we like to make that are really quick and easy. So that when we're on our way to the market, we literally look and we go, oh, what are we going to make this week? Oh, that one, that one, that one. And we don't have to do too much planning because we know what goes into those things. So having those like little tips and tricks just makes such a big difference. That's great because, yeah, we we go to the market, we go every two weeks. Um, <laughs> and what happens is we get there and we either don't buy any vegetables because we like, oh, what are we making this week? Oh, I don't know. Oh, we didn't, you know, and then we don't buy anything and then we have nothing for the week. Or we buy too much and we don't plan what we buy and then we don't use it because we don't know how to use it. Or yeah. we didn't really, you know, we have one eggplant, but we actually need two eggplants for this dish. Um, so yeah, planning is, is great. Are there any challenges that you find, you know, with going to the market and, you know, pre-planning everything? Um, 
yeah, I mean, it means that we have to prioritize that, right? And I just don't think that everyone has the luxury to do that. And I, I think that it's probably pretty unreasonable to say that everyone's going to be able to live their life like that. And I don't anticipate being able to live my life like that forever mm-hmm. as well. Like things, situations change where you live is really a huge predictor. I mean, we're so lucky that we live somewhere so close to that has access to a fruit and veggie market. So there are so many barriers to being able to have that as part of your weekly routine. And I think if you can do that, great. If you can't do that, it's it's not your fault. <laughs> we need a change to the system because mm. it's just not supporting people in the way that it should. Yeah, that's true. I have heard of these things called food deserts where you can't access fresh, fresh fruit and veggies, I guess, within a walkable or drivable distance. Yeah. And that's really going to impact your ability to buy fresh fruit and vegetables on a weekly basis. Yeah. And I think often we think that we don't have issues with food insecurity in Australia, but actually we have huge issues with food insecurity, be it from finance related problems because there's a lot of that Um, or because we literally don't have access to the right foods because like you said there are very much food deserts in Australia Um, and I guess one example of that is if you are in a rural or remote community the fresh fruit and veggies have traveled a very very long way to get to where you are and, um, and the quality at that point is really low. So, and I think that is good. You can still rely on things like frozen veggies and tinned things. Um, they're perfectly nutritious and quite easy to make. And we, we use those quite a bit at home as well when we're in a rush or we haven't had a chance to do that weekly shop. We'll go into the freezer and we always have a couple of bags of frozen veggies in there that we can use. But it is just a really good reminder that not everyone is in the same boat and it is currently a privilege to have a healthy and sustainable diet Mm. and that it should not be that way. Mm. Okay, so the open mic section is uh, when you, the guest, get to talk about something that you're passionate about, but it doesn't necessarily have to be related to the topic. Um, It can be related to the topic if you want it to be. Uh, Now, you did have a thought about what you wanted to talk about Do you mind explaining it? Yeah, sure. So um, in the last couple of years, I've been very lucky that I've been able to kind of connect in to an international network of young people who are trying to make change in our global food system. So in 2021, I was involved in the United Nations Food Systems Summit as a youth liaison. Um, So the United Nations Food Systems Summit was basically a massive international effort by the UN to engage people in the topic of food systems. And it engaged people from, you know, farmers all the way to nutrition and economics and um, social justice advocates. So all and just consumers, eaters, um, <laughs> everyday people who eat food. So the whole world was was um, was invited. There were a number of political issues with it, as is always the case with the UN. Um, but it was a really interesting process. And from there, I got to meet a bunch of other young people who are being involved in 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 sustainability um, more broadly, as well as also looking specifically at sustainability within the food system. And so. From there, it really got me thinking uh, about the importance of involving young people in decision making. And there's this incredible, incredible large group of young people who are pushing for change um, internationally and also locally um, and, and really making sure that young people have a voice. And the reason why that's important is because 
as young people, we're going to be around for longer. And we're talking a lot of the time about climate change and the impacts of climate change are going to be felt from now into the indefinite future. Um, And so it's incredibly important that we have the engagement of young people um, and also like not just um, as current leaders, but also training us up for being future leaders as well. So um, a lot of the people that I know are in advocacy organisations learning the ropes at a much younger age than I am. (laughs) You know, they'd get to, I'm 28, they'd get to my age and already have at least 10 years of experience in advocacy, which is incredible. Um, And so there's just this whole plethora of people and it's just an incredible energy and I've learned a lot from them. So I just thought I would raise that. And if other people, if there's another young person that's listening to this, that's like, I want to get involved, you're very welcome to reach out to me and I can connect you into one of those networks because it is... um, yeah, it's empowering to be to be involved in these processes. More recently, I've been a young scientist for the World Food Forum, um, which again, similar vibe. We've got young scientists from all over the world. I actually finished in that role just in the last two weeks, um, but it was amazing. Got to go to Rome, meet all of these other young scientists, advocates, um, and people working to make the world a better place, and it, it was incredible. Sounds amazing. Um, And if people do want to reach out to you and, um, you know, talk to you about these experiences or, you know, your research, your work with the CSIRO, um, where can they find you? Twitter is probably the easiest place. Um, so my my Twitter name is is my name. So it's Kim Anastasiu. Um, and hopefully that will be written somewhere in the show notes because it's not the easiest last name to, to spell. Um, that's probably the best place to reach out to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you can also find me through ResearchGate um, if you're interested in reading some of the studies that I've done, particularly in the, the one that I explained today around um, mapping the environmental impacts of ultra processed foods. I'm sure it's very interesting and lots of our listeners will read it, but thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Gabriella. You've been listening to On the House, produced by the Household Management Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes like this from across 10 life management perspectives can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smart devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it so we can grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at hm.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Gabriella Yastra. Thanks for tuning in.